Good evening. It's my turn. <laughs> Before I begin my talk, I'd just like to sincerely thank you for your efforts these days to awaken. On behalf of my species, it's a noble, noble effort. And uh, it's greatly appreciated, I think, by all beings. So tonight, um, I'm going to talk about Buddha Dharma as it reveals itself in our current understanding of the universe, our current understanding of ourselves. I want to start by saying, however, strange as it may seem, all of the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> so the disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? If you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again until you do get it. The spiritual path can really be seen as a, as a question of identity. How we come to see ourselves in the scheme of things determines how we feel about our lives and how we behave towards others, toward the environment. So the Zen masters ask, who is it that's going out of these six sense doors, in and out? Or who is it that drags this corpse around? And the Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. And we are built to believe that we are in here and the world is out there. And we constantly feel as though we are acting on the world and very rarely feeling that we are of the world. A caveat. The sense of self is not bad. It's almost the definition of life itself. It has to have some kind of boundary in a sense of its own integrity, every form of life. The Buddha's great breakthrough was that he saw through the membrane and realized that we are not separate and isolated, but that we co-arise with all things. He gave us a new story, a new identity. I think it's interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. That the self itself has its own history. And the clothing of self wasn't always this tight. 
This is uh, the psychologist Rollo May. Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. There have been analysis of early Greek literature and uh, it revealed to some extent uh, the Greeks believed that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we of course now would consider somewhat schizophrenic. <laughs> of course, we now believe that all the voices in our head are ours, <laughs> which is its own form of psychosis. If you went up to a a desert nomad or a, a, a peasant a few hundred years ago and said, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> they wouldn't know what you were talking about. We seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme in the history of self at this moment here in our time, in our culture, in this nation of individualized license plates. <laughs> the story we tell ourselves is all about our personal dramas. We've lost what anthropologists used to call a participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a tribe or a nature or the cosmos. We live in what's been called the culture of narcissism. And that feeling is isolating and suffocating and it's a source of our political and ecological crisis and our individual unhappiness. So we need a new story. We need an upgrade of our mythology, if you will. This is Joseph Campbell. He says, the old gods are dead or dying and people everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be? the mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. Meanwhile, and ironically a little, uh, modern science is giving us a new story that somehow supports what the Buddha taught in some ways, as Trudy was talking about last night. Um, revealing the ways that we are interconnected with all other living beings and with all things in the cosmos. For instance, we now know that our bodies are made out of heavy elements formed in the early history of the universe in exploding supernova. So we are stardust. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. Where else, where did these bodies come from? They're made of all natural earth ingredients. <laughs> we are certified organic. <laughs> and this being, this self that we walk around with, is shaped by all the life that came before us. The scientists in, uh, the, back in the 
back in the previous century, back in the 1900s. Uh, <laughs> we're studying the formation, the development of the brain through evolution and discovered that humans don't actually have a brain. We have three brains and they grow in, in each of us in the embryo as in the same order they grew in nature. First we get a reptilian brain, the brain stem. Then we get a mammalian brain, the limbic system. And then the new human brain or neocortex grows over that. And it turns out that one brain doesn't override the other brains. They're inti intimately interconnected with each other. And there is serious evidence, growing evidence, that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we are not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> but all of this new scientific evidence and all this new understanding we have of ourselves can kind of lie rusting in that neocortex. How can we make it personal? How can we make it wisdom, turn it into wisdom, turn it into transformative understanding? That's where the Buddha comes in. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. We need a new understanding of, a new feeling of what it means to be I. We need a method for revealing our new identity to ourselves. The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra, how to explore and experience who we are, how to examine who, who am I. And he was a scientist, really. He used the scientific method. You develop this quality called mindfulness. And that becomes the observing tool in which you are as objective as you can be about yourself as the subject. The Buddha was like a naturalist, you know, going into the wilderness of self and taking notes. Uh-huh, there's a uh, bear scat, there's uh, some <laughs> thoughts about my future, there's this, there's that. He was really exploring in a very new and uh, unusual way. The Buddha instructed us to explore these four foundations of mindfulness and ask the question as we're exploring. This construction, self, what is its cause, its arising, its ancestry, its origins? He really wanted us to question where this experience of self comes from. then, of course, we will begin to understand that this is not I, this is not me, this is not mine. We're made of a long stream of causes and conditions. And we can discover this for ourselves by using mindfulness and investigating, going inside. I'll use some of my own experience as an example of how this real, these realizations can unfold. When I first started paying attention to my breath, I was using it as a 
concentration object, something to focus on. But after a while, I began to realize, as you may have, that the breath is not really mine. I don't breathe. Breathing happens. That breathing goes on within me and without me. In fact, if I tried not to breathe, if I held my breath, I would eventually pass out and breathing would continue. <laughs> it's like life got in me and demands to live. This breath is not mine. The breath also told me that uh, something more about my identity, that I was, I was alive. I was one of the live ones. It carried that message. The breath began to take me down Focusing on the breath began to take me down from the story of my life to the fact of my life. And when I got down there to the fact of my life, there was a kind of beautiful mystery there. You know, I mean, I didn't really, I don't really know what this is all about, but I felt connected to that mystery. And I conne felt connected to all breathing beings. With a little reflection, I realized that my breath connected me to the plant kingdom. That every breath, with every breath, I was a cell in this great breathing of this planet. So there was really a, a kind of shift of identity that grew gradually. You know, Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. In meditation, I also began to explore my body. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka. And we did the body scan technique where you take your mind down through your body and back and again and again, focusing on sensations in the body. And what an experience that was to begin to feel the body as a process, not a thing. Uh, and after a while of doing this body scan, the, the, the solidity of the body completely dissolved. It was just this tingling mass of sensations. It was a beautiful and profound lesson in Anicca. Everything changing split second after split second. Nothing lasting in this body. What is its ancestry, its cause, its origin? The Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. I mean, the, the Buddha and Darwin would have gotten along very well. It's so obvious this body has a life of its own, you know? It gets tired when it wants to. It gets hungry when it wants to. It gets sore when it wants to. It gets horny when it wants to. It has a life of its own. Sometimes I think about, you know, this body I inhabit. I didn't choose this body. <laughs> I 
I, at birth, I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Would you like your hunger and sex drive built in or manually operated? The most profound shift over the years of meditation practice for me has been my, my relationship to my thinking mind. We're still friends. <laughs> we live together. <laughs> but we're no longer quite so codependent. Um, in fact, I think I may have started a meditation practice largely because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem would start thinking the minute I got up in the morning, would be thinking in the middle of the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. <laughs> needed an intervention, you know. But I think for many of it, and many of our, my colleagues have talked about this, you know, thinking problem, but I think one of the most profound and earliest insights I ever had was that, you know, this mind is out of control. It's, it's got a mind of its own and it, it does, you know, it plans and regrets and fantasizes without even consulting me. You know, it just <laughs> goes. Whose thoughts are these? An interesting exercise. Sometime take a sitting or a couple sittings See how many of your thoughts have something to do with survival, including your, your place in the pecking order. But it's an interesting sort of experiment. Again, as everyone has said, thoughts are not bad. But, uh, you know, most of us are lost in thought. We're, we're true believers. And over the years, one of the, one of the great gifts of the Dharma is, has, for me has been to learn how to ignore myself. What a relief that can be. I mean, if this mind was mine, I would have installed an on and off switch, you know. <laughs> if my mind states and my moods and my... If, if it was mine, I'd be happy all the time, wouldn't I? So after years of exploring myself in meditation, I still don't know who I am. I'm starting to learn, though, who I am not. That's helpful. But the greatest gift I've received, I think, from the Dharma is that in the process of this exploration, it has brought me some intimacy with the mystery of life and the wonders that are all around us all the time, which we usually are not aware of because we are always projecting our likes and dislikes on the world. We never, hardly ever are present for what is happening in this moment, which can be so filled with miracle. Hafiz says, 
O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? We get so lost in our personal drama, we take for granted the fact of life itself. We don't know what this is. This is a complete mystery. Swami Muktananda, I had the privilege of interviewing him once, and I asked him if he did these miracles and produced you know, things out of thin air like some of the Swamis do. And he said, no, no, I don't need it produce miracles. I just tell people to look at the blood cursing through their bodies. I say, that's miracle enough for anybody. Also, over the years of meditation, and I think largely due to the fact of meditation and my, my beginning to explore myself in this way, I became very interested in science. And uh, I began to see that science was really supporting what the Buddha taught and unraveling this conceit of I and self and showing me how interconnected I am with all things, all of life, all of the cosmos, how little self I could possibly put into this mass of causes and conditions, uncountable, unnumerable causes and conditions that create me and create this moment of my experience. And if Buddha were alive today, I have no doubt that he would use modern science as a skillful means of pointing out his teaching. This is Einstein. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. A holy curiosity. So uh, to arouse your holy curiosity, I want to lead you now into a little reflection on the mystery of life in the universe. Um, a reflection I call, Be Here, Wow. <laughs> and by doing this, I hope to bring some energy and curiosity and love into your meditation practice. Uh, I'm sure some of that's there already, but maybe we can add to it. So here we go. Let's start with the mysteries of the cosmos. This is a talk about all and everything. The mysteries of the cosmos. Carl Sagan said, if you want to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make a universe. <laughs> I was recently reading an article in the New Yorker magazine about parallel universes. You know, they think there are all these parallel universes now. And somebody asked the, one of these mathematician, scientist, you know, uh, oh, I can't possibly imagine, uh, you know, uni these parallel universes. And the scientist said to him, if you had never been here, could you have imagined this universe? <laughs> Who could have dreamed this up? 
On the opening page of my internet search engine, I, I get the astronomy picture of the day. A few months ago, I got a picture of a newly discovered galaxy called the Sombrero Galaxy, shaped like a Mexican hat, of course. And a little write-up underneath said it contains 600 million suns. <laughs> I was, I mean, why weren't, why weren't people going, falling to their knees and just like, oh my God, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that say about us, for us? 600 million suns. It was less than 100 years ago that we knew of one galaxy in the universe, our own, our little Milky Way. The latest estimate is that there are 100 billion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies, containing 30 to 50 million billion suns. Okay, and, and this is what's really interesting. Scientists say it all came out of virtually nothing. Nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a new creation myth. I'll give you a little of it. In the beginning, say the scientists, there was nothing. And it was good. <laughs> nothing could ever be wrong with nothing. In the beginning, there wasn't any space. So there was no place to put anything. In the beginning, there wasn't any time. So nothing ever got done. Nobody cared. And then suddenly, there was a big bang. Now, that was the theory for a while, but then some scientists decided, hey, if there had been nothing, what banged? <laughs> so they went back and they did, you know, reconfigured things, and they decided there had been something after all, a dot, a, a point smaller than an atom, a singularity. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists, that there was a big bang, that dot exploded. It happened 13.7 billion years ago today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you too. That dot exploded and out of that explosion came the elementary forces and particles and they began mixing and morphing and eventually creating billions of galaxies full of suns and planets and Mountains and oceans and people and animals and every, every Zafus and everything, <laughs> everything you can know of and name and it all came out of a little dot smaller than an atom. Now, isn't that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? <laughs> Which is more fantastic? Take your pick, you know. Uh, one of my favorite uh, images uh, uh, coming out of the science of the Big Bang is that a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. 
the whole universe was just. And the ingredients for all of us was in that little, you know, you could take that home, put it in a corner. <laughs> it's a universe you can get your mind around. And now one scientist estimates the universe to be 10 billion trillion cubic light years large or something like that. So what is up there? Recent, recent really exciting news. Life. Lots of life. Very likely lots of life up there. The new Kepler Space Telescope is discovering hundreds of new planets that could support life. Planets in the Goldilocks zone, as they call it. Not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> Hundreds of planets in our galaxy alone that could support life. Considering there are 100 billion galaxies, very likely, very probable, there's life everywhere out there. And I think it's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. It's not all about us. <laughs> the Big Bang. They say that we're, you know, every move we make uh, that we are continually using the energy of the Big Bang when we walk, when we talk, when we move, that that's that primal energy. Right now inside your brain, million, millions of synapses are firing. That's, we hope, that's, <laughs> that's the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. We're like pieces of the universe wondering about itself. Maybe that's Maybe that's what it's all about. By the way, I think it's good to remember that it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make you. Cause for some self-esteem, you know. What a project, you know. <laughs> this universe we live in is a real trickster. Looks like there's a lot of stuff here, right? There's hardly any stuff here at all because everything we perceive is made of atoms and atoms are 99.999% empty space. I don't know if you remember, I remember back in high school, my teacher, my physics teacher said you blow up the nucleus of an atom millions of times till it's the size of a pea. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So, if your body's made of atoms, and atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? <laughs> Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. <laughs> Why don't we all just fall through the floor, through the earth? It's all a magic act of some kind. The Heart Sutra, you know, says form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. How prescient was that? And the physicists are now saying that consciousness plays a 
major role in the creation of reality. Mystics have known that for centuries, but now the Copenhagen interp interpretation of quantum physics says, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. There is no reality in the absence of observation. So let's try a little experiment here tonight, a little scientific experiment, okay? Now, pretty much everybody's looking up this way. I think uh, you guys you want to put your attention over here. Look, please look back that way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You'll, you'll ruin the experiment unless you look back that way. Okay, so that should mean that part of the room has disappeared. Okay, let's check it out. Somebody was peeking, maybe. <laughs> there is a, a story, maybe apocryphal, that there's a group of, of llamas somewhere up in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention. <laughs> they know that we all have to live through the karma of this life. A haiku. No mind, no matter. No matter, never mind. But, of course, there's really nothing here at all. At the very core of matter, they found energy. One scientist said, matter is just gravitationally trapped light. It's all really just a light show. Everything is in process. There is no thingness. Sokni Rinpoche, Tibetan Lama, who many of us have studied with, says, you Westerners have a real problem. It's a real problem. You think everything is so real. Jack Kerouac said, happiness consists in seeing everything as a great strange dream. So we'll get more personal with this Be Here While reflection and reflect on uh, the fact of our existence as human beings. It's very improbable that you are here with this body and brain, contemplating the improbability of being here with this body and brain. The odds against it are literally astronomical. The conditions at the moment of the Big Bang had to be just right or the universe wouldn't have happened like this. The size of a neutron or proton had to be just right if it had been a little bigger or a little smaller, either of them, uh, or the nuclear force holding the atoms together or the electromagnetic force trying to pull them apart. If they, either one of those had been just a little stronger or weaker, the atoms would have come apart and then no elements would have been created, no oxygen, no carbon then where would you be? <laughs> Mr. and Miss carbon-based life form. Oxygen-breathing life form. It all had to happen just like this. I mean, talk about the number of causes and conditions that had to be just so for this moment to happen of us here. 
I, I think maybe someday we should, we should have a, a, a religion or a spiritual cult maybe that, that worships uh, the elements. We could chant the table of basic elements. <laughs> Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. It's almost mantra quality, isn't it, with the ums and the ons and the... And we have been shaped. We got into this shape as life met the demands of nature through the history of this planet. This upright posture, this big brain, volcanoes erupt, continents bump into each other, ice ages come and go. And life has to find new ways to live, grow new appendages, new camouflage, new ways of being mobile. Sort of nature is, is the art, and we are the, nature is the artist, and we are the art. We've been sculpted out of this dance. For, for two and a half billion years of life on this planet, there were no legs or feet, because there was no land. I always I come, I keep coming back to the Buddha 2,500 years ago saying this body's not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. Evolutionary science can be a powerful teaching of, of Dharma. Obviously, dukkha and anicca, you know, very obvious in the whole history of life in every, in every era. And also a powerful message of anatta, of no self. We realize that life is a temporary appearance arising as a result of all these various elements coming together from a flow of biological and cosmic evolution. And what, amazing, what an amazing combination of elements we are. Let's get into our bodies for a minute and just do the be here while inside of ourselves. For a moment, you might want to put your hand on your stomach. You don't need to, but you might want to. Uh, feel the plumbing there, the massive guts. Uh, at this moment, probably amazing processes going on down there. Vital nutrients being extracted from food, blood sugars filtered, waste being produced. Phenomenal amounts of, of Processes taking place in the stomach without your having to lift a finger. It's all, you know, design. What a beautiful design. And right now there are more living beings, individual living beings inside your stomach than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. <laughs> they have houses and churches and roads, whole, <laughs> whole civilizations in there. The great molecular biologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is completely arbitrary. We're walking communities. We're walking ecosystems. We couldn't live without those beings. And they, of course, live at our 
uh, grace. There is some speculation, actually, that the bacteria created human beings as, as a moving feedlot. You know, get room and board <laughs> and a tour of the neighborhood. Come to a big cause of wonder, our senses. Darwin himself wrote, nature has evolved organs of extreme perfection and complication, which justly excite our admiration in his very Darwinian British kind of way, scientist kind of way. For a minute, uh, close your eyes and just uh, focus on hearing. And as you hear sounds, like the sound of my voice or somebody sniffling, be aware that sound does not exist in the outside world. Um, okay, you can open your eyes. See, right now I'm, I'm flapping my lips and creating these air currents that are going and hitting the drum of your ear, which then wiggles uh, some little, three little bones, and that excites a little liquid uh, center in the inner ear, and that stimulates some little hairs that then uh, excite some electrical signals that go into the auditory center of the brain, which then creates what we are experiencing as sound. It, does, it isn't out here. It's this amazing Rube Goldberg device that was designed so that we could notice events at a distance, as were our eyes designed. Phenomenal. And not only does your brain create sound, it creates meaning out of the sounds you hear, translates it, and gives you a sort of report, moment by moment, on what you're hearing and what importance it has for your survival and entertainment. Our sound system plucks meaning out of the air, along with music and other delights. Sight to Amazing. What you're seeing right now, of course, is not the original. What you're seeing is your brain's uh, reproduction done beautifully moment after moment after moment. All these, these photons hit the, hit the uh, cells in the eye and are translated into electrical signals that are sent to the visual cortex of the brain, which then kind of goes on a conference call and you know, decides what you need to know and what you need to see and translates it into the picture, then it flashes you again, over and over again, moment after moment. Phenomenal. Charles Darwin again, he wrote, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. It is such an amazing instrument. It's, it's just a small piece of flesh uh, 
built out of sugars, fats, water, and a little protein, yet it has millions of precisely calculated moving parts. These eyes. So your mind and your senses are the true creators of this sound and light show. Alfred North Whitehead wrote, the various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves. The rose gets credit for its scent, the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. But the poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. So all your dreams of being an artist are taken care of. You don't have to take piano lessons. It's, you know, just turn on the radio and you're creating this music inside. Someone called it the brain, the pre three pound universe. Briefly, just a, a few statistics about the brain. Your brain processes 11 million bits of information a second. and then constructs for you a moment-to-moment -moment picture of reality. Meanwhile, the scientists are discovering there's no director up there, even though it seems like there's a director up there, kind of making decisions, running the show, you know, kind of monitoring. It's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a being that lives up there, the head. We're so identified with our heads, you know. Heads are us. Uh, but the scientists are discovering that the brain is like a self-organizing system that really uh, processes all the incoming information and makes our decisions for us and decides our behavior kind of without uh, any guidance. A few years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story entitled In Search of the Mind. And it was an update on the latest scientific understanding. I'm sure a lot of people were a little surprised that the mind was lost and probably were really shocked to realize that the scientists couldn't find it. This was the last paragraph in the article. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, Consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic of some kind? These are scientists in Time Magazine saying the self does not exist. So what is life? The great mystery. Well, at least we found the molecule. We think we found the molecule. It has something to do with life. DNA. It seems to be what separates life from non-life. 
It's these four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA molecule will contribute to the growth of an ant or a giant sequoia or a rose or a human being. It's a miraculous substance. Deoxyribonucleic acid. I think that's much too cold and clinical a name for this miracle molecule. I have a new acronym. I'd like you to help me spread it. Every time you see or read the, the letters DNA or hear them, think divine natural abundance. Divine natural abundance because this molecule plays a part in the creation of all beings that live. I don't know if you know this, but your DNA is just about 99.9999% identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and Donald Trump and <laughs> Oprah, and Paris Hilton, whoever. Our individual differences, a thin coat of paint over this basic human design. You know we share over 98% of our DNA with the great apes. Nearly 90% or a little over 90% actually with mice. That's because most of the instructions for building us and maintaining us are instructions for a basic mammal. It takes a lot of information to to create a nervous system and a muscular system, skeleton, brain, the whole. I mean, it's a huge project. And nature sort of made one design and kind of kept using it over and over again. But uh, we share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms, nearly 50% with yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is, is the slime not divine? And if not, where do we draw the line? Who gets a soul? Mushrooms? Snails? See, I, I think this story, this new story about who we are, and this new story about who everybody is, all things are, what all things are, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't deny our divinity but it maybe denies our exclusive divinity. There's a great t-shirt put out by the biology department at UC Santa Cruz. It says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. All of this is to say there's something amazing going on here. And a little reflection can really help us arouse our curiosity and our delight and our wonder at ourselves and the world we live in. It's really a very exciting time. We've got all this wisdom, all the wisdom of the world's cultures available to us. We have all this interesting new information from science giving us a whole new picture of who we are.
in the scheme of things. And here we are trying to turn this information into a transformative tool to really alter the way we, we live in this world. Maybe with more of a sense that we are interconnected and that, you know, as, as Chief Seattle says, you know, the, the ponies and the, the, the pine trees are, the sap of the pine trees is like our blood and the ponies are like our brothers. And, you know, we're all one family. And it's, it's a way for us to develop our individual satisfaction and happiness as well. A feeling of belonging, a feeling that we belong. This is E.O. Wilson, the great biologist. The chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane moving through a junkyard and creating a 747. So I offer you this kind of reflection to use when you get cynical or need a hit of wonder. Devise your own, change it. And I also want to say awe, wonder, are, are revolutionary because if we, we have awe and wonder, we won't need to go out and rearrange the world to our liking. We will find our satisfaction in the way it is. So one way to do this is to during a sitting, when you go to sit sometime, maybe later today, see if you can experience your breath as this sign of life and connecting you to all the, the breathing beings of the world. Or experience your breath as if you'd never felt it before, as if it was the first one. There's kind of this Satisfaction that you get when it goes in there. Satisfying your cells for this need for this nutrient. Sit with this koan. Not looking for necessarily for an answer, but just what is this mystery? Who am I? O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.